There's no one right way to life, wife, or parent. I'm an empty nester with a full life. I'm a young mom who is sometimes running on empty. I am color in the lines. I'm running with scissors. I'm sensible shoes, sometimes taking myself far too seriously. I'm holding it together with three bobby pins and a lot of self-deprecating humor. I'm Aunt Mara, an emotional health therapist. I'm Nis Kira, a wellness advocate. Together, we're Sandy and Shwani, bridging generations to pass down wisdom, uptake vitality, take whatever is bringing you down, and lift you up. Table talk with takeaways for an elevated life today. We're Mood Mamas. <laughs> <laughs>
this meerkat felt. <laughs> I need a job really <laughs> fast. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay, so obviously nonverbal communication helps us as a species because it can reinforce what is being said in words. Just that gesture, just even now as I'm saying that, you're nodding your head. And when we, we ask someone how they're doing, the way their body responds tells us a lot more than their words. Oh, I'm fine. And they look down or their, their shoulders are shrugged. That tells us a lot more than the words, right? We, we're not always congruent. No, no, absolutely. I think we need to be better at reading these cues. I mean, we could be much more effective communicators. Yeah. I think one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen for mixed signals is in Singing in the Rain, that part where they're trying to, they have the separate soundtrack and they're trying to match it up with the picture on the screen. And she's going, Yes, yes, yes. And she no, can... no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we do that all the time. We are not congruent in our messages. So that's something really important to look at. And like you talked about, even the tone of voice, like someone's very sensitive to tone. I would ask him something and he'd be like, why are you getting on me? I'm like, I just used words. And he's like, it was the tone. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's so important because... Maybe we should give some context. We'll give some body to this. Okay, what's the first level of communication, would you say? The first level of communication has to just be the words we use. And that's why I think texting is such a weird thing because we are actually so used to reading so many other cues from people. How confusing it is. And, and thank goodness they gave us emoticons to try and help us out just a little bit. Like, what do you mean? Right, right, exactly. Because otherwise we're just reading it through our own filter. That's so true. And to think that the brain is probably going to fill in those gaps because there isn't subtext, there's only context. So a lot of assumptions are being made on the reader's behalf to fill in those gaps that could be entirely incorrect without an emoji. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's why Marco Polo or things like that are more popular because you can actually get the context. Although most people who Marco Polo aren't even really looking at the, <laughs> their phone. They're just like driving in their car, chatting away. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I, I do try to use it intentionally, especially for co-regulation. Like if it's, it's at least a one-sided context, one-sided, like multiple layers, one-sided. I talking on Marco Polo's hard because I'm not getting the social cues reverted back to me. It's, but the, at least the listener knows where I'm coming from, but I could be in far left field before, <laughs> because they can't interrupt me on it. <laughs> exactly. So I guess words would be the first conversation. Right. Mel Schwartz, he talked about definitions, I guess, are important to the first part of the conversation. Definition clashes, like the way I, maybe I use the word irritated and my husband thought it was mild. We're irritated, you know, it's not angry, but it's like really flustered or something. I, I don't know. Other triggering words, you never know what they're going to be, but all of a sudden you realize that the word you're saying doesn't mean the same to them. And so when that happens, instead of just responding with, what? What did you say? What, what is this? It's more of like, I'm interpreting what you said. So going back to that active listening of just the context of the conversation, just the information coming forward. 
is this is how I'm hearing it. This is how I'm understanding it. Is this what you're meaning? Mm. Because just the definitions can get you off. But the second level, okay, let's go to that second level conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many things involved in that. And I think that's why it is 70 to 80% of our communication. So to me, the very first one is eye contact. They say the eyes are the window to the soul, but that really tells you, is that person engaged? If we try to talk to someone and they're looking away, they're looking at their phone, they're looking somewhere else, you immediately get that sense, okay, you know, we're not engaging, we're not connecting. And yet there's something so powerful about making that one-to-one eye contact. Or even if you're speaking to a large group of people, taking time to look around the room and read those faces, because I think we get fueled off that eye contact, that interaction of, of the eyes. I agree with you. The second conversation is the meaning. It's a subtext and you're creating safety or you're analyzing safety. Am I safe to continue in this conversation? Am I going to be respected? Or are they really angry at me? And am I safe to respond? Right. And then obviously the next one would be body movements, which could be any simple gesture. It could be a hand gesture. It could be the shaking of the head and even just culturally, it's so different. I mean, people point, some people point with their hands or their feet. My son lived in Argentina for a while and the people would point with their lips. He would ask, where, you know, where, where is this? And they would just like push their lips to the side. That's so interesting. <laughs> they couldn't be bothered to lift an arm. It's just like over there. <laughs> over there. Over there. Well, and gestures can be kind of tricky too, as far as culturally, the thumbs up signal that we give all the time and okay, those mean completely different things in Europe and in Saudi Arabia. So we have to be really intentional when we are communicating with someone of a different culture or if we're in a different country. Different time period. It makes me think of Shakespeare, actually. I bite my thumb at you, sir. Now we just flip someone the bird or (laughs) something like that. But before, I bite my thumb at you. Uh, medieval English person told me that I would be like, okay, ouch. You know, I wouldn't know what it meant. And then, don't, do you know people who cannot talk without using their hands? And my friend, I swear she's like Italian or something because she has to use both hands while she's talking. And I have kind of gotten to the point where I won't drive in the car with her because she drives with her knees because she's always gesturing. I'm like, you know, I'll drive, I'll drive, don't worry. That would have been my first conversation. Like, does she just not talk on the phone when she's in the car? But you need yes. one hand on the steering wheel. Come on. <laughs> Why would she drive it off a manual? <laughs> oh, gosh, never. <laughs> she would have to take a vow of silence while she was driving. <laughs> Smart. I mean, I, I don't text anymore because they have the talk to text, which puts in all the weird punctuations, but I feel like it's still better. But I don't know if I could just not... Depends on the conversation. There's been somewhere I'm like, okay, I either have to pull over, I need to call you back. (laughs) Maybe those triggering conversations like, hey, I cannot navigate the realms of this relationship and the freeway at this point in time. (laughs) That's too many things. So another thing that that is culturally affected is what they call proximity or closeness when we're having a conversation with someone. In America, in the wide open spaces, at least in the West, I think we have a bigger bubble of privacy. We want people, you know, on arm's length. And yet in other countries, it just depends. Canada and England, they also like distance. But yet if you get up in a big city, you may not have a choice about that, right? You're getting on a crowded subway. And they've actually noticed differences, say in Europe, when you're on a crowded subway, 
the people, even though they may be so close, they're touching, they don't communicate. Nobody talks on the subway. People look away, they put on their headphones, even though they're pressed together very intimately, they don't make eye contact because perhaps when we're forced into this intimate space with strangers, it's so uncomfortable. It's just easier to, to ignore that they're there. I mean, have you ever been on an elevator and people don't talk and you're just like, why is this so awkward? Why are elevators awkward? Yes. And then usually I end up saying something ridiculous. The awkward is hard. I can't just dwell on it. Cody is better at just like sitting there and like letting, letting it lie like that. But I think you're right. That's an interesting observation that maybe they can't have the connection of even eye contact on the subway because they are so close together. Their space is being invaded. I bet. I bet so. But in India, you know, it's loud and people are talking and they're just comfortable with all of that. So, and I think there's also differences between genders. Women initially, especially with a, a strange man, with a stranger, they want a lot more distance. But I think women tend to spend a lot more time in close proximity. Right. I did read something once. It was talking about in the workplace. They, they were one of those people, like they were influential that they would invade the space of someone that they considered to be subservient. What was interesting, a company I worked for, I was a secretary and I watched the dynamic. Sometimes my boss would come out and there would be a salesman that would come in the front door. And so this was all transpiring right in front of my desk. And all of a sudden my boss would be up in this guy's personal space. (laughs) I don't know if they would notice it, but instinctually, I think the salesman would just start to take a step back just to get some space. But then again, my boss would get in this guy's face and he actually even did it to some of my coworkers. Like it was an interesting social experiment. But again, when you're a secretary, you get really bored. And so you're just watching. (laughs) So, so right. That proximity, the closeness can either be for intimacy or it could be for intimidation. Right. And it was definitely, I don't think he wanted to be close to those salesmen most of the time. (laughs) My friend's son attends a charter school and they have a rule that they can't talk in the hall and they can't touch each other. And she works at the school. So she came up to him and she was just kind of messing around with her son. And he blurts out really loudly in this hall, but it's completely silent. My mom's touching me inappropriately. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, we laughed so hard about that. So maybe another nonverbal communication would be posture. We kind of talked about that, how you respond when someone's communicating with you, but even how you walk into the room. And in a previous podcast, we talked a little bit about Amy Cuddy's power poses, but she actually even uses a term called presence. It's not only how you Um, how you stand to prepare yourself, you know, for that confidence, but it's how you stand or sit, you know, at work, do you slouch down just looking at your laptop or in a presentation? How do you stand? Are your hands in the standard fig leaf position? I always like that. People are just that their hands clasped in the front because they're- I've never heard that, but that is so true. I'm never going to see it. Oh my gosh, Lara. Now I feel like I'm going to, I'm a picture of them naked, like Adam and Eve. <laughs> Next person that puts their hands like that in this fig leaf. What have you done to me? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but where we keep our arms definitely shows our comfort level. And that's a really good cue in reading someone else too. And we can mirror their posture to make them more comfortable. You know, it is just comfortable a lot of times just to stand and talk to somebody with your arms folded. And then I have to remind myself, wait, I want to make myself open to this person and I will drop my arms down. I thought the same thing just yesterday. 
I have a friend, he's very sensitive, I think, to these, to the situation. He didn't mention anything, but it was comfortable. And I was standing with my arms crossed <laughs> uh, as we were taking family pictures. I noticed he crossed his arms, like mirroring mine. And so I had to make the conscious effort of like, no, no, it's okay. If we're, it's, family pictures are stressful. Maybe I was a little bit like, ah, but <laughs> that is- I didn't want to convey that. I wanted to convey some harmony or some levity that we're in this together and it's okay. Yeah. Yes. And even just how people position their body. If you notice on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, you can tell so much about how the people are sitting together. And is the woman's legs crossed towards the guy or away from him? I mean, that just speaks absolute volumes. I feel like I can pick out the victim, like, or not the victim, the poor bachelor is the victim or bachelor, (laughs) the villain. I feel like I can pick out the villain just watching that body language and the way that their face will like either contour or yeah. And we do a lot of mirroring also just with our faces. Did you know we have like 60 different muscles in our face that we can just pull all of these different poses? That's a really subtle way of either making someone comfortable or uncomfortable. You know, if you're scowling at someone, I think they learn, okay, maybe they're done with this conversation. And in fact, if you, here's a really important tip. If you want to end a conversation with someone, they've just going on and on, or you need to get somewhere. When we're nodding, that is almost a sign that says, continue, continue. I'm with you. I'm with you. So you have to stop nodding your head and then also break that eye contact. Just kind of look away. That will give that subtle cue to most people that that's the conversation is coming to an end, but it's really hard to do because you and I are- I want to be polite. I have been in, I've been in the cold, not having a jacket in my slippers, talking to my neighbor. And I guess I'm just nodding way too much because I was out there for an hour. So (laughs) big exaggerated gesture with my arm, you know, (laughs) now trying to articulate my gestures. It's really difficult. Uppercut, one arm. Uppercut, uppercut. uppercut. I played Mortal Kombat. I know the language. (laughs) So speaking of arms, just in case you have to give a presentation or you have to talk to someone, they talked about how important it is to not cross your fingers in front of your body and also to keep your elbows out from your body. In America, we need big arm gestures. So if you keep your elbows in, you look like a T-Rex and you're like... So (laughs) confident people actually use their whole space. You know, we open our body up when we make a gesture. Yes. Also recognizing what you do with yourself. I had this coworker and he would scowl. He'd be in the meeting and he would just be scowling like with the eyebrows are together. And that's when he was deep in thought. He had told me if I'm ever looking like I'm just displeased or I'm scowling, I'm processing the information. And so he was aware of it and he articulated it you know, to our team what was going on. Because a lot of times you're talking to him, like we'd be on break and be talking to him and he would look really you know, angry. angry. Yeah. But, but it's more of a, I guess, pensive, maybe a little bit more than pensive. Studies actually show that people who are really in touch with emotions actually have more wrinkles in their forehead. Look at me. Look how expressive I am. You see his wrinkles? I did think about Botox. I did. Okay. I know I'm only 30. You're too young for that. Well, but I did read an article that talked about preventative measures. Okay. So I read this article and I started telling my, my friends about it. Like, Hey, I think I want this. And they said, Kira, you're so expressive. How would we 
how would we recognize your face? Like, how would we know how you were feeling without those gestures if it had been frozen? I'm like, okay, we'll wait a few years. <laughs> I knew someone who actually had a facelift. Her eyes and her eye, you know, her eyebrows, everything was up. But you also end up with black eyes because of the process. And so her husband they said don't to her, tell you. right. Her husband said to her, you look like you're surprised someone punched you in the face because she <laughs> didn't have any of those creases or lines. All she had was just this surprise eyebrow thing until everything <laughs> mellowed out. Oh my gosh. Keep your beautiful face and your wrinkles. I have a lot of what they call crow's feet, but my mom always says those are laugh lines. And that makes me feel better. I think you can tell a lot about age. Like, okay, when a person gets older, if they're a nice person or a mean person, because you start to have wrinkles in the same shape that your face normally is in. So if they have a lot of laugh lines, it's like, okay, we can be friends. It'll be much easier to weed out the people when I'm old <laughs> versus <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm young. It's like, I don't know if you're just angry or like resting, what do they call that? Resting biatch face. Yes. I have resting dork face. <laughs> and I realized this because my sweet best friend, she asked if she could take pictures uh, while we're opening up my daughter's birthday gifts. It was so nice and thoughtful of her because I couldn't do the camera and help my daughter. And the pictures that came back from it were, there wasn't one that looked the same. I'm like, oh, <laughs> my face just changed in so many ways. It's like, how can one face do all of that? <laughs> For what reason? What was that toy? I don't know. I mean, Jim Carrey made a lot of money off those kind of plasticity in his face. Right? I should be the mask. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody stop me. Josh does that so well. Have you heard him do that? No. Somebody stop me. I heard his voice in my head as I just did that. <laughs> How cute. So we actually do have some nonverbal responses that sometimes it's hard for us to control. You know, some people blink more when they're nervous. The heart rate's more likely to increase. Those are some things that are pretty hard to control consciously. But if you're going to do any sort of public speaking, I think having somebody photograph you or record you and kind of watch it back and see what your tells are. What do you do when you're nervous? You know, when people get nervous, some people scratch, some people are adjusting their eyeglasses, biting their fingernails. My friend's dad, whenever he would get angry, he would always put his hands in his pockets. And she said he always had change in there. And so he'd, his change would be rattling around in his pockets. And we always called it internal, external anger. Like he didn't have to say anything. You could just feel the change rattling. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that like, like maybe that's his fidget spinner. Like it was the olden day fidget spinner. He's like, I have too much excess here. Yeah. <laughs> I also think if he's coming down the stairs and his change, his pockets are all jingling, I think I'd be nervous. <laughs> you can hear him coming. Uh-oh, dad's coming and he's on a rampage. <laughs> I can't ask for a sleepover at night. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we do still communicate a lot through physical touch and people in initial meetings, just even how you greet somebody, obviously men are always looking at, is that a strong or a weak handshake? Women too. And I've shook many a hand where they're just like limp hands, like, hello, dainty men do very dainty handshakes there. And I do derive meaning from it, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, I was at a wedding and it's funny how men are like, they're so uncomfortable with emotions. So everyone who would come over to the dad, he would just give them big giant backslaps, like just this boom, boom, like he was beating a drum. And yet- <laughs> 
like the more he liked the other the people who were coming through the receiving line, the harder the back slap they got. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like, like if you're bruised, I'm well loved. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, I will definitely keep my distance from you. <laughs> <laughs> I know you love me, but it's okay. <laughs> we don't have to hug. Yeah, yeah. Touch, touch for sure. Especially I mean, you've talked about it in Emotional Mind 1-1, way of consoling your child, just holding space for them by a hand on, the, on their back, right? The small of their back. I think typically women are better at this touch communication and showing closeness and intimacy through touch. Well, so I think touch, it's one of the most basic ways of connecting with another person. And it can be as simple as just taking your partner's hand when they're upset or touching their shoulder in the middle of an argument to just kind of diffuse that anger. Some men are like, I'm not very demonstrative. I'm not very good at that. And yet men do know how to soothe. You know, you can see them with a child taking them in at night and Sometimes the difference is that they feel like that child, they see, they only see that vulnerability. And in a spouse, sometimes they, they only see judgment from that spouse, recognizing that really to come together, you both have to be vulnerable, but that physical touch is a bid for connection that can help us be more successful when we will make that physical connection. Right. There have been times that Cody's articulated to me in a situation where he said, I'm, I'm unhappy and how quickly, how easy it was for me to think, what am I doing? Right. I must be the focal point in this life. I must be doing something wrong. What do you mean? The brain wants to act offensively. It wants to protect itself. And so maybe I'm not being supportive. If I didn't recognize this feeling within myself of, well, what am I doing? Well, he should just be happy. If I can get my ego out of the way or I can just support him in his feelings. Maybe it has nothing to do with me. Maybe all I can do is, is support. So I think they can be very soothing to situations they don't feel like they're responsible for necessarily. If a child says I'm unhappy, the parent doesn't usually just think, well, what am I doing wrong, you know? <laughs> no, they think, come on, yes. what could we do? What hand did life deal you? Versus when our partner says I'm not happy, interrupting that through touch, through recognizing those patterns and getting your ego out of the way that you can just support the relationship or trying to convey meaning. Like if something's really important, I've even told Cody, cause sometimes he'll, he'll say we had a conversation. And I'm like, I don't remember this conversation. Not at all. Like you might just have to touch me. You might just have to make sure I'm clued in to this and, and touch is one way of doing that. Like, yeah, absolutely. I, Especially with kids getting on their eye level, you know, that's also a way of intimidating, you know, that higher position to a lower position. And so when we bring ourselves down to be at the same eye level as a child, that builds that connection, that builds that trust. It's saying you're important. And also like, hear me, see me, <laughs> pay attention to what I'm telling you. I once had this supervisor. He was incredible. I, I don't even know if he knew how incredible he was, but whenever we'd have a discussion, especially if he was talking about maybe an issue, he would pull up a chair. So instead of just coming to my desk and looming over, or if it was some sort of feedback, maybe even if it was more corrective feedback, still he'd pull up the chair and he's right there with you. Or he want to understand things from your perspective, but it was never, I never felt inferior. Ooh, that is so great. That is he so great. All of those, like, honestly, I wish I could have bottled up what he did. Let's say I asked a dumb question. And I would realize it would be dumb, but I wouldn't realize that till the very end. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Well, I mean, but sometimes, sometimes in, in a technical field, sometimes there are stuff that you should already know. 
he would say the answer like I already knew it. He'd say, oh, what you actually mean, do you mean this? And he would give me the right answer. He would never take credit for the idea. He was like giving me those good ideas and reinforcing my ability in something. There, there could be so many lessons from that. He was a really great example of communication as a point and purpose that it's not just for information, but it's also the meaning of the information. And that context, the second layer of the conversation that we're talking about now, he was really good at enforcing that. Yeah. That's cool. So uh, that body positioning, we can also talk about how men and women are different in that. There's a book, Love and Respect. That's the only book I've ever heard of that talks about men prefer side-by-side conversation to women preferring face-to-face conversations. It said men look at face-to-face conversation as confrontational. It's like two dogs eyeing each other down and growling or whatever. What they showed is a room. If there's two chairs, there's two women, and the chairs are faced forward, the women will shift their chairs so that they can make eye contact. But men, they're used to side-by-side conversation. That's what they grow up with. You know, they're working on the car together or they're driving in the truck, doing a chore. So when we want to have a conversation with a man, we have a lot better chance of it being non-confrontational if we will actually have a side-by-side conversation. I love this so much. I feel like you're the only person that I know that has taught or continued this thought. I feel like the research that I have read is more about like face-to-face interaction, eye contact, be engaged, active listen. And maybe that's not realizing what nature is. You know, cats, when they first greet each other, they blink. They do like this little like hello, because if they were to stare at you directly, it incites their aggression, confrontational at that point. So you're supposed to kind of blink slowly at your cat. Like I'm not aggressive or on the contrary, lion tamers will train lions by keeping that eye contact and like, not blinking. do not blink yes, with the lion right it's a staring contest between me and my cat all the time like i still haven't quite figured it out yet we need to take some walks i wish our podcast audience could see you blink when you talk about your cat i don't have a cute blink or a wink really <laughs> but it's kind of dramatic so i'm sure my cat just thinks i'm i don't know <laughs> I think we can learn things from the animal kingdom. I mean, you have how dogs greet each other. Pheromones. We're I don't think gonna... we should go up and sniff each other's crotches when we <laughs> start. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think you're right. I think maybe we've, we've evolved a little bit. I don't want to put us back in, in that way. But uh, I do think that there's something to be learned from nature. And you telling me that it's more confrontational. That absolutely makes sense. You think men are out there, they're hunting in the wilderness and they have to see through their peripherals. They're talking about camp, you know, but they also are on a mission. Women are learning from each other. They're building a tribe. They're communicating together. A lot of that is face-to-face. They're raising their children. So from primitive time, even not just nature. I, that's why sometimes you just hear something and it resonates. It makes sense. Yes, I do like eye contact. Yes, that makes me feel supported. But I also don't want to inflate confrontation with my husband. So if he if he's going to operate better side by side, then I'd rather have that type of conversation. <laughs> so I guess uh, when you see somebody sitting side by side at a restaurant, they're either really, really in love or they're trying to avoid confrontation. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Isabella and Cody, when they go to breakfast, they actually do sit at the bar. And that blows my mind to think that when she and I've gone to breakfast, like a mother-daughter date, she's across the table from me. Like I want to interact with her. Cody and I go to dinner. We're actually on the same bench if we can do it. And a lot of people want to, like they'll, they'll try to face us side mm-hmm. by side and Cody will grab his menu and sit down right beside me. Huh. Huh. Interesting how he, so he naturally gravitates towards that side by side intimacy, which is. And we hold hands and cuddle on the bench. Like I don't mind, but yeah, I guess <laughs> naturally it resonates that it's side by side. Yeah. The third layer of the conversation. So or we talked about information coming through and then the meaning is the second level. And the third level is identity. And so that would be when you ask yourself, who am I in this conversation? Hmm. Have you ever been in a movie theater and someone's really like obnoxious and you just want to tell them like, oh, I wish I could just tell them off. Like if you took a pool of everybody in that theater, you know, you'd have it a range of things. Yes, I would always speak up. I would tell them not to, or no, I wouldn't want to, to say anything. What's going on is this internal dialogue that says, who do I want to be in the conversation? If I tell them, does that mean I'm an angry person? Does that mean I'm not more relaxed? Does that mean I'm trying to control the situation? So whenever anyone's having a conversation or two people, you could have two running dialogues at the same time or narratives. What do I want to communicate? What does this say about me? Does this mean I'm a good parent? Does this mean I'm a good spouse? If I tell this person how I feel or by saying this, will they be offended? Will this hurt our relationship? You have information, tier one, relationship is tier two and the third tier is self Hmm. and so it's this mixture of all three of them that conveys everything but I would say the bulk of it the heart of this is in the level two that's that's going to be the relationship one oh but I think this level three is really interesting just because so much of it does go back maybe to our attachment style is it safe for me to speak up is it safe for me to ask for what I need and even just recognizing what your nature is. I was at a a mastermind meeting. We were helping someone with their business. And it was so interesting because I found that I am a blurter. I blurt. (laughs) Like I'm so excited. Someone says something and I don't want to forget what I'm going to say. And so I like just blurt into the conversation. I don't even wait for a pause. And I, I noticed this over and over about me. And then towards the end, the moderator said, okay, let's go around the room and everyone can give their last points or suggestions. And I realized, oh, I've already blurted everything out. I don't know if I have anything left to say. And and then it got to someone and she had thoughtfully, during that whole time, she had not blurted once, she had written down all of her suggestions. And when they gave her her turn, she just calmly went through her list and they were all so awesome. And I thought, dang, like I want that. Next time I'm gonna learn to blurt on paper first. (laughs) Okay. Sandy, this makes me love you that much more. I'm serious because I am a blurter. I am a blurter too. I'm interrupting because I don't want to forget the thought. And I also think it's a part of, or I justify it, like it's active listening. I'm, I'm continuing with them. I want them to know I really understand right now. But then you get into tangents and stuff. I thought that you were much more of the other type because I've often looked at my friends. I'm like, oh, they just summed it up all nice and neat and they gave such valid points and mine has been interjections through here. Maybe are they doing better job at listening? You know, maybe they're actively listening it, but they're containing it. Maybe they just have a better memory. They're able to, (laughs) I, I don't know, but I just, I really, you make an excellent point because your communication style matters. 
if there could be some people that would be offended if you're interrupting, like Cody sometimes, he was telling me a problem about work once and I was relating to him with a similar problem. I wanted to know that I understood what he was going through. And he actually thought I was trying to- uh, One up? Not necessarily one up, but worse maybe. I was trying to uh, usurp like the conversation. He didn't say the word usurp, but that was the intent of it, that he thought I was just trying to take it and then go and run with it and talk about me sort of thing. Instead of relating, like I wanted it to be, it wasn't relational. It wasn't bringing that togetherness. He looked at it like I was interrupting Mm. versus people that are interrupters. I feel like now it makes sense maybe why you can tolerate my blurtiness, but I'm really (laughs) grateful that you have this too, because I really, no, I do sense restraint in both of us. I do, (laughs) but it's really hard. It's so true. No, and again, there's no one right way. I mean, we just have our nature and you and I are contributors. We're collaborators. We're excited to share and people need that in the conversation to keep it rolling, to feel like, okay, yeah, tell me more, tell me more. So we're actually drawing people out. There's a place for both. I just think sometimes I also need to realize that not everyone needs to hear every thought that's crossing my mind. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) I like them. I like all of the thoughts, but at the same time, I'm glad that Cody articulated the way that he felt. It would have been really sad if, because that was not my intention. And so I was grateful that I could fix that air so we could continue having the conversation. And also maybe so setting the intention of just hear me out sort of thing. Yeah. Setting that intention at the beginning. And I think our subconscious does recognize micro expressions and it does recognize, you know, we got to go back to that gut feeling. The body doesn't lie. When we're in a conversation with someone and they're giving us information, I think we can stop and consciously maybe ask ourselves, is this person a friend or a foe? You know, are they telling me the truth or are they lying? Is this person on my side or not? And is this person someone who I'm going to let determine the outcome. You know, sometimes we ask for advice, but at the end of the day, we need to take responsibility for our choices and for our actions. Yeah. So asking those questions and kind of emptying your mind and letting the answer come to us, that's a skill also, as well as observing the nonverbal communication. We can actually get our brain involved in that conversation or that analyzation of this person. Are they good for me? Are they not good for me? Right, right. Okay, so marriages, relationships, long-term relationships, you would start to have these patterns. So you've been really good at picking up on these cues and analyzing the information. What if you've just gone down a path that your communication is not working? Like you are not understanding each other. This is not working out. Maybe if you set the intention, like I am going to be curious, I'm going to try to be aware of the labels I'm putting on there and just look at this from a beginner mindset. Like if I didn't know this person with this many years, What are they really trying to say? Like, let's say you guys are trying to turn over a new leaf or you're just trying to have better communication. If you set that intention of like, I'm going to listen and see you through a beginner's eyes, maybe you would have an entirely different relationship out of these conversations. Yeah, perfect. And asking ourselves that really important question, how do I know I'm right? We tell ourselves that story, that narrative. There they go again. You know, they're the ones causing trouble. They're stirring up contention but how do I know I'm right? And if we're just willing to just give this space that maybe I'm not right, maybe I'm not reading it right and I'm not judging it right. Okay, so first I wanna say that that phrase, how do I know I'm right, has like taken me back. It was almost like 
you hit me with your words a little bit. Like my, my whole body just wanted to like go backward because how have I not questioned that? What does that say about me? If we're going to articulate this internal dialogue that I've never thought, how do I know I'm right? That is really insightful right there. It's because but, we're right so much of the time. It's hard for us to ask that <laughs> Well, of course I'm right. <laughs> wow. Like, I don't even know. Like, I'm a little embarrassed. I mean, it's out there. But I definitely <laughs> want to have a growth mindset and want to learn and, and learn a lot about myself. So I think, yeah, how do I know I'm right? Definitely, though, focusing not even so much on the words, but the energy in the room, you know, what the person's actions are saying. You know, they've talked about even your eyebrows communicate so much. And I the wrinkles. The primate <laughs> response, but keeping our eyebrows relaxed because when we raise our eyebrows, we, we signal that we're worried or surprised or in fear. There's so many cues in the face that give us signals. Right, those facial muscles for sure. I came across this and I want to put it in the show notes. One of the biggest takeaways is a leaflet from the Department of Health, and it talks about communication skills for healthy relationships. And what I like about it is it talks about barriers to communication. And so instead of just looking at how do I know I'm right, you can have these sort of barriers there that can be environmental barriers, like maybe the car is too loud. Your kids are in the back and they're all talking. Maybe now is not the right time to have this type of conversation. So there are times to talk about it and on the freeway is not okay. <laughs> Emotional barriers can be like triggers. Also, if you've had the discussion lots and maybe you just can't get into that beginner mindset, maybe just articulating, whoa, I'm triggered or have a buzzword that says, I'm not thinking with my adult brain, my big girl brain. Right now I'm thinking with my toddler brain, my primitive brain, and it's making me think some pretty terrible assumptions. So let's, let's pause for a minute because I'm triggered and we'll come back to it. And that's so good when you even say toddler brain, so much of the time a situation in the present will trigger us. And if we have not resolved prior trauma, we actually come at it from the energy of that child. So now we are no longer an adult having a conversation with another adult. We are a child and we may feel that authoritative parent kind of energy coming from a spouse instead of being an equal with them. So it's really important to say that just, oh, pause, wait, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I'm six years old and I'm back getting in trouble with my dad. And you know what? I can't get in trouble with you. Like we can have a conversation, but you know, you're not my dad or you're not my mom. Let's get back to adulthood here. Oh, I love that. I love that. I can't get in trouble with you. Like that's not your role. Like, and you're not trying to put that on them. That's just where your brain has taken you. Ooh, I really like that. So yeah, these emotional triggers for it. Poor listening skills. <laughs> I don't want to say that my blurting is a problem, but we already talked about it. Like sometimes maybe in that case, it was a problem. And if I'm not giving the other person what they need or articulating what I need, if I don't feel heard, even in conversation, if you really have a point to get across and someone keeps cutting you off, I've had friends say like, wait, wait, hold on, let me get to the end. And then you can tell me. Like, <laughs> This is the important, I'll lose my train of thought unless I get to the end. But that's an engaged conversation. Worse is a conversation where that distraction, that barrier is there because someone keeps checking their phone or because they're watching the game. So again, not having a crucial conversation in a setting that is not conducive to that. That's why I do like that walking and talking with my husband so much. There's no phone. I mean, the worst that happens is a car honks at us, you know, <laughs> crossing a street or something, but we are there and we're both fully present and engaged. Right. 
So this guide, it goes into listening and like that active listening. And a big one that hit me was speaking. I am wordy and I like to articulate my thoughts into completion because I'm this audio processor too. So I'm working my stuff out and I want to be heard. But sometimes that can be overwhelming. See, I think that's why we need girlfriends. And I mean a trusted girlfriend. You can't have one person that you always dump on about your significant other or your spouse or your child because then they can get a negative picture of that person. But sometimes we need to spend all the words. We need to, we need to put them all out there. And then when that person validates us and says, you know what, this really is a conversation worth having. We can come to it much more succinctly, much more calmly when we go interact with a man, whether that's our boss or a spouse. We can use minimalistic words, the direct A to B with them instead of here's all the feelings and all the thoughts of my heart and my (laughs) entire life. No, I absolutely agree. I had a situation in the workplace and I, I called my dad and I was just like, oh, I'm so frustrated and I feel like I want to speak up. And we got to the heart of it. The heart of it was I wanted to show initiative and I felt like I had been held back. And I wanted to be able to communicate that. So that means that needs to come across as excited. That needs to come across as motivated. If I would have just went into my boss, I would have given him a whole layer of lists and you would have just seen all the negativity. Finding the root of it and then communicating that saintly or also the times that your partner comes to you, maybe try to find the need or the request in that conversation. Even if it's discouraging, I think about your friend that was cutting the watermelon and the husband comes in is like, that's not how you cut a watermelon. What was he trying to say? Was he, was he trying to say, I need to feel like I contribute value. I need to feel like I can control this. Is he saying, I want to teach you something. I want to be a teacher. You should rely on me. You know, finding the need within any criticism almost like what are they saying? And that's really hard to do when you get into your toddler brain or uh, or you get triggered and it's immediately, he's telling me I'm not smart enough to cut a watermelon. So that was so good to maybe go back and revisit that experience and try and attribute different motives to him, but then maybe even have a conversation about that, which is sometimes hard to do. Just even having that conversation saying, you know, when you criticized how I cut a watermelon, it made me feel and get back to the feelings. Not it made me I felt no one can make us feel anything. So let me correct that. Yes. When, when you criticized how I cut the watermelon, I felt belittled. I felt ashamed, whatever it was, especially criticizing someone in front of other people. That is one of the worst things that we can do. That creates such a barrier to intimacy. It's uncomfortable for the people who witness it. And it's so shaming for the person I see so many of these conversations coming back to children and parenting, especially getting stuck in the context. So that first layer with Sabella, if I'm like, no, this is just about you need to clean your room before you have a friend over. Am I giving the subtext enough information? Am I making her feel safe? Am I actually hearing her or am I stuck in level one? Or maybe I'm in level three too. I'm just thinking you know, what does this say about me? If I give in now, am I giving in on everything or something? But if I pay maybe more attention to that subtext. Pay um, attention to level two and tone and are you getting on her eye level? Are you communicating love while you're making the request? You know, honey, I love you so much and I can't wait for you to have a friend over. And these are the things 
and not but. And these are the things we need to accomplish first so that we can relax and have a good time. Right. I was once called out as a child. It was a family gathering. It was by my uncle. And I put my finger in the jam on Thanksgiving and he jumped my bones. He immediately criticized me in front of my whole family who I love dearly. And I felt so embarrassed. I think I was like 10. So old enough to know not to put my finger in jelly. I don't know why. It happens. Come on. Right. It was, it was really raw, but all of a sudden to be on that chopping block in front of the people I love, like how many times are we doing that to our children? And we're not seeing maybe they were embarrassed the way you're talking to them in front of their friends, in front of their family, in front of their siblings. Yeah. Yeah. So being intentional about where those conversations need to happen. That's really good. Right. Yeah. Another takeaway, which I will also put in the show notes is Neil Satin. I love, love Neil Satin. He has a podcast called Relationship Alive. And on his podcast, he has a link to three simple secrets to transform your communication. And I won't say more beyond that, just that it is awesome. And Relationship Alive is an, a really excellent podcast. And he, he talks often about communication and different ways of going at it. All right. You're going to have to tell us the three. We can't wait. Just hit the bullet points for us. Presence. Presence is the first secret. Second secret is going to be a key question to ask yourself. Will what I'm about to say make my partner feel more safe in the relationship or less? Mm. Like to err on the side of kindness, progress, like what is the intention of the conversation? Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? If you ask those questions before you start out a conversation, you can keep things to yourself. It's okay. You can- <laughs> We're going to have to gag the blurters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for the person, it's okay to keep things to themselves. Sometimes things aren't necessary. The problem is over and done with. Nothing can be done. The milk is spilled. There's right. no reason to chew someone out for it. It, it happens. Right. right. Just clean it up. Mm-hmm. You know, if, or if, you, if you're going to do something anyways, a request that you maybe don't want to do, why do it begrudgingly? Like just take it in stride or say, hey, I'm willing to do this, but you owe me one. <laughs> I <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and then the third secret is seven words to change everything. Did I get it? And is there more? Like, do I understand? Reflective and, listening. Yes. Yes. Cool. And I think it's like four pages. That's awesome. <laughs> I love resources like that. The last takeaway that I want to end with is that stress compromises our ability to communicate. And when we're stressed out, we are more likely to misread other people. We may send confusing or nonverbal signs that are really off-putting or have that knee-jerk reaction. Emotions are contagious. So if we're upset, it's really easy to draw others into that chaos, into that whirlwind, and then make a bad situation worse. So if we are feeling overwhelmed by stress or by a situation, we need to be able to take a time out. One of the fastest ways to do that is employ one or all of our senses. So what you're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or even through a soothing movement. For example, if you look at the screen cover, the image that's saved on most people's phones, it's usually something they love. Like mine is actually a giant sandcastle we built (laughs) once, but I look at that and it just, 
invokes connection and memory. I, I recognize the people who were there, my favorite place. It's just this thing that immediately calms me down. So having an image or an image even in your mind that you can go to that helps soothe you. I think scents are very calming for us as well. I love essential oils. How about you? Yes. Well, I'm very, very sensitive to essential oils. I mean, to any sort of fragrance. I feel like I would need to walk around with coffee beans. I was once trying to pick out a fabric softener. And an hour later, I left the supermarket without any fabric softener because I just was like mind flooded. Brain was nose flooded. I don't know. So very, very sensitive. Oversaturation. Oversaturation. I think it can work in reverse too. I've actually felt irritated walking into a space and all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's that garbage can. There are potato pills in that garbage can. And that's made me really irritated. And I don't know why, but as soon as I take out the garbage can, we can have a much better conversation. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. For me, like lemongrass is a scent that just really calms me down. Some people like lavender and I don't. So you, you really do kind of have to find a scent that works for you listening to music that is just a huge mood shifter and we are going to do a future podcast on music for sure there are other stress techniques getting yourself a squeeze ball i know even when i was in the delivery room i brought myself a racquetball and i would put all the stress in my body into that hand because my, my husband was like you broke my hand on the last baby you need something else to squeeze <laughs> oh. putting all that tension into that ball, just squeezing all of that into there and letting the rest of my body be relaxed. So, you know, having something that is a stress reliever for you, maybe even rubbing a stone. I remember when I was a kid, I bought a, it was called a worry stone and it worry was just stone. yeah a stone that had this smooth pocket on it and just rubbing that. And I used to do a lot of self-soothing as a thumb sucker, as a child with the little silky edge of blankets. And so I would rub that with the one hand and that was very soothing to me. So we could even do that. You know, maybe you just need to grab the edge of your sweater and just kind of rub for a second and just like calm yourself down. <sighs> Obviously breathing. Oh my gosh. Cannot say enough good about breathing. Even just three deep breaths is so calming. Right. Right. Understanding when your stress level could have nothing to do with the conversation you can do with your sugar levels. Hangry is a thing. <laughs> and I know it's really easy to just project that. We talked about this in our, our previous podcast of projection, but owning, hey, I'm just stressed out and it has nothing to do with the situation. It is external and I'm really bad at compartmentalizing. I'm sorry that my emotions are bleeding into the circumstance right now. Yeah. Recognize it. It's not always about you. It really could be about the other person and, and what had already happened. We sometimes treat people in our homes the worst of anybody. You know, you, you suck it up all day long and you're good to everybody. And then you come home and you lose it over the littlest thing. And so again, just forgiveness, just looking at the intention of that person. This person is someone you love and someone you know loves you. So just saying, wow, it sounds like you must've had a rough day if you're reacting like this and just giving them that grace. Right, right. Be the best version of yourself to the, the people you love. There were times I felt like I'd been really collaborative and helpful and positive and encouraging at work. And then coming home, it's like, but it's spent. It's spent. There's nothing else to give. I just want to curl up in a ball. <laughs> I want to show up best for Cody and Bells. Yeah. And just finding one of those senses that will help you recenter, relax and refocus. So just kind of do some experimenting. What works best for you? Yeah. 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 So good. Okay. Well, this has been so fun. So insightful. Yes. Please subscribe if you want to hear more. 
And that's a wrap. <laughs> you don't rap anymore though, right? Because that, that came from... I don't know. I'm not a rapper. Give me some rap. I meant W-R-A-P. <laughs> I think... <laughs> and that's a wrap. <laughs>